it's also recording. I'm just locked in, but it's recording. Soul ground of salvation is the grace and mercy of God. And, and the supreme aim of salvation is the global glory of God. So the how? Saved solely by His grace. The why? Saved supremely for His glory among the nations. some of you are in this room who is you're just obsessed with your child and you think everyone else should be also like oh my gosh he said god was that the cutest thing you know and it's fine you know it's just but we know right you can tell when someone is just insanely in love with their kid their wife their girlfriend you can tell when they're not so into it and I guess my concern was, I just wasn't hearing a lot of people who were in love with Jesus in that way. sign-up sheets, official sign-up sheets for camp next week. The dates are wrong. That was from two years ago. This is the camp that was meant to be and just never was. Uh, 29th of April to 1st of May. Friday to Sunday, 29th April, 1st of May. Cancel overseas holidays. Um, cancel weddings, cancel birthday parties. And um, come to camp. Um, working on the cost. It's going to be around about 500 rand a person. Uh, but that's, as we say, that's for everything. You arrive, you're fed, you're watered, you're bedded, you get the whole lot. Um, so camp, sign up next week, put it in your dates, put it in your diaries, we're going to do this thing. All right. Um, man, it's going to be a long Sunday today. Sorry, guys. Um, so 
the picture that I had up a couple of weeks ago should hopefully appear in a moment. But it's the things that the church is meant to love, right? The four things that we're to love as a church. The four things that every church is supposed to do. And it didn't fit on the screen. Look at that. So there's the upward trajectory of loving God. We love the Lord our God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that speaks to our worship of God. And if you scroll down, you'll see that there's a downward arrow that speaks to love your uh, love one another, right? The, 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 the community. We love one another within the church. Love one another as I have loved you. And that speaks to building and creating community in the church. I'm glad you can see that there. Um, and then there's the two outward arms of love your neighbor. Uh, um, so to, it's the story of the Good Samaritan, and that speaks to us going out in acts of mercy, acts of charity, acts of kindness, acts of goodness. And then in the other direction, we're called to love the world. as God's, For God so loved the world that he came, and then he sends us into the world on mission. Right. So we have love your God in worship, love one another in community, love your neighbor in acts of mercy, and love the world on mission. And the question is, what, what drives that? What motivates all of those things? What makes us do these things? And there are a couple of things that we could say motivate us in doing stuff for Jesus. So some of us are motivated by guilt. We do stuff for Jesus because I feel bad. We do stuff for Jesus because the pastor told me I had to, and so I'd better do it. And when I don't do it, I feel terrible. And so, so I remember I used this example when we were talking about the Good Samaritan, how um, you, you know that you're supposed to help the poor, and so you take a sandwich to work and you hand it out to the guy at the traffic lights, and you think you've done okay, but then you see there's another guy across the road at that traffic lights, and then at every traffic light to work, there's, there's more poor people, and you think, I haven't done a very good job, have I? I'm not really the Good Samaritan, I'm the bad Samaritan. I'm, or I'm the, I'm the below average Samaritan, maybe you would say. And so the next day you make lots and lots and lots of sandwiches to hand out to all the people that you see. And you've got so many sandwiches left over that you're feeding stray cats as well. And now you come home going, I'm no longer the substandard Samaritan. I'm now the exceptionally good Samaritan. And our guilt leads to pride. And so now we're suddenly motivated by pride. Can everyone see how good I am? Let me take a photograph of myself handing out food to a poor person so that I can put it on Instagram, right? And so our guilt motivates us and drives us to do things out of pride. And neither guilt nor pride are particularly good motivations for doing things for Christ and for the gospel. There's another axis that you could work on, that the fear versus favor axis. I better do this because if I don't, God will come for me. God will zap me. I'll, I'll, better, I'll better read my Bible and I'll better pray because if I don't, oh, that's why I've got a headache. Oh, of course, God is punishing me for not reading enough this morning. I have a headache. Now what I'll do is tomorrow, I will, here's what I'll do. Tomorrow I'll pray for three minutes. Three whole minutes. But the problem is that that three whole minutes has cost me time in the road and now I'm stuck in a traffic jam. And my response now is, hey God, that's not fair. I deserve better. I pray for three minutes, surely that should mean that I get to avoid the traffic, right? Because you owe me a favor. And so uh, we do things out of fear that maybe God will zap us. And instead, and, and, and when, we, when we kind of get over that, we think now that we're starting to do things, now we're going to, now, we, now God owes us stuff. And now God, God's got to pay us back for what we've done. And we do this whole, can't you see how much done I've done for you, God? And so again, fear and favor does not work as a particularly good motivation 
for Christian ministry. And yet I think a lot of people within churches are made, motivated by either the, 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 the guilt versus pride kind of axis, and a lot of other people in church are motivated by the fear versus favor axis. And so stuff gets done in the church and it's great. Stuff happens and you do ministry and you're out there sharing the gospel with your friends. But God looks at the heart and he's not very impressed with your pride. And he's not particularly excited by your fear. And he's certainly not into paybacks. And I owe you shucks, I better pay back. So what is it then that motivates us in the gospel? What is it that motivates us in, in loving God, in loving the world, in loving your neighbor, in loving one another? And in my little picture, right in the center, if you can read that in yellow, it says that we're gospel-centered. It's the gospel that drives these other things. We do these things because of the gospel. Dan kind of said it this morning and saying, our church holds the cross in the middle. It's the cross. It is, it is the gospel of the cross that sends us all over the place. And I think what a lot of people have thought over the years, and I remember saying this several years ago, that, that we, we seem to think that the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the basics of Christianity. And once you've got the gospel, the gospel is what gets you into Christianity. But once you've got that, you can move on to deeper things, right? We've got the gospel, shallow water. Now we can move into the deep end of the pool and we can deal with things like spiritual warfare and spiritual gifts and spiritual macrame. Apparently some people do that. Or, or getting in touch with your inner child and giving him a hug or a spank or whatever it needs. Um, and so there's this understanding, this idea that, that we've, we've, we've got the gospel at the beginning, but now there's deeper things to get into. And so, so we've got to understand the end times. And just to say that's not deep end stuff, that's shallow end stuff. That really is. The, point of the, the, point, the whole point of the gospel is that we never move out of the shadow of the cross. We never move beyond the cross. The gospel is not just the beginning of our faith. The gospel is what shapes everything about our faith. It is the gospel that transforms us. It's the gospel that drives us to doing these things. We show mercy to the stranger because Jesus, the true good Samaritan, showed mercy to us when we were lying broken on the side of the road. We go because he came. We go on mission because he came on mission from God. We love each other because he loves us. And so everything that we do is driven by that. It's driven by what Jesus has done. It's driven by the gospel at the center. And so we're to live the gospel every single day. We're to live out the gospel as we go about. Here's what uh, author Paul Tripp says about the gospel. He says, living the gospel is this. It is a humble admission of my daily need for Christ and a humble pursuit of his grace. This is what living the gospel looks like. A humble ad admission of my desperate need, of my daily need for Christ, and a humble pursuit of His grace. That is what drives me, or it's what should drive me. Now, over the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts, we've seen the early church as a community that gathers. We've seen the early church as a, as a worshipping community that prays. We've seen, seen the early church in a, as empowered by the Spirit for mission to go. But what sits at the heart? What sits at the center of the early church? What is it that prompted them to, 
pray and to worship and to commune and to, to mission, what, what lies at the center? Is it the power of the Spirit? Is it the big characters like Peter and later on Paul? Are they the ones that drive this thing because they're just type A personalities that get things done? And what we'll see is that what lies at the center of the early church is the power of the gospel. And so we're going to read Peter's sermon this morning from Acts chapter 2. And some of you, I know, you're going to say, we're going to read Peter's entire sermon in three minutes. Why on earth can't you preach like Peter, Chris? Right? Three minutes, come on. Um, I would just like to say that the sermon ends with Luke saying, with many other words, Peter spoke to them. And I'm, I'm all for the many other words. Sorry. All right. Acts chapter 2, from verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. Did I not put it on the screen today? Oh dear, sorry. It'll arrive eventually, sorry. Pay attention. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Remember, the Spirit had come upon them. They're out on the streets speaking the languages of the nations. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David not, did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What a day for the church, right? They go from 120 people to 3,120 people in just a few short hours. That's going to take an awful lot of organizing because now suddenly their home group of 120 now needs a whole lot of home groups. And in fact, they need to figure out where are we going to find a place that can seat 3,000 people for next Sunday morning's church service. And can any of you play a guitar, by the way, right? This is an organizational nightmare. And it all comes about by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And I want to, this morning, I'm going to make three comments from this passage about what the gospel is. What Peter had to say about the essence of the gospel. But before we get to Peter's sermon, let me just remind you, the gospel just means good news. That's what it means. Good news. There is good news to announce. This week, there's been bad news. There's been lots of bad news to announce. We're reading every day for the last few days the bad news that is coming out of the Ukraine. We're reading all the bad news that's going on there. We are reading bad news about what's going to happen at the petrol pumps on Wednesday. Fill up your cars on Monday or Tuesday this week because it's not going to be a happy day on Wednesday morning when we wake up. Not only is there bad news, we live in an age of fake news. And there's all sorts of fake news all over the place. I just love that Donald Trump this week released his new chat app and called it Truth Social. Hmm. I've just got to say I'm a little skeptical. Not necessarily because of Donald himself, but because of what anyone else is going to put on it. Uh, just, just saying. But the gospel is neither bad news nor fake news. The gospel is good news. Three things out of Peter's sermon. Number one, the gospel is based on a series of historical events. The gospel is based on things that actually happened. The gospel centers around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus at its very core essence. And we can expand the gospel, and we can talk about the gospel being about creation, and fall, and redemption, and restoration, and seeing that the full, is the full scope of the Bible but when, when the Apostle Paul speaks about, when he says, let me remind you of the gospel in 1 Corinthians, he says, let me remind you of the gospel. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. When Peter speaks of the gospel in this passage, he says, let me tell you of the gospel. It is about this man, Jesus, who came. The bare essence of the gospel hinges on what Jesus did, on what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And Peter's sermon is full of references to Jesus, to what he did. He says, Jesus did signs and wonders among you that you saw. Now just remember that Peter's preaching this sermon just, I don't know, six months after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That was like two kilometers outside the city walls. People in Jerusalem were all hit up and were talking 
hugely about the man who was raised from the dead. That had gone out on Truth Social. Dead man rises and everyone's going, fake news? Can't, true news? I don't know. They're talking about the miracles that Jesus performed. They're talking about just a year earlier, just one year before this, was, this happened, of, of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a couple of slices of bread and a tin of sardines. That's it. 5,000 people. I couldn't feed you with a tin of sardines and a slice of bread. And in fact, these people, uh, well, see, so, so these people, they're talking about the things that Jesus has been doing, and Jesus has been talking of the town for the last year or two. This is not some, Peter's not making stuff up. They know what he's talking about. This gospel is about Jesus and what he did. But more than that, Peter spends more time in his sermon talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus than he does about the miracles of Jesus. And in fact, that is the pattern of the Bible. It's the pattern of the New Testament. If you look at the, the four what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them spend more time talking about the death of Jesus than they do about anything else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one-third of their book, their letters, is about the last week of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John, one-half of that whole Gospel. Half of the Gospel of John deals with the night before his death and into his death. Why? Why do they spend so much time talking about the death of Jesus? Because it is his death and his resurrection that rests at the center of the gospel. Jesus died and was raised. And so Peter keeps highlighting that. He quotes Old Testament passages to speak about that. He says, he says that wonderful line, This Jesus was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, nailed him to the cross. Peter's message is, Jesus died. Jesus came, Jesus died. And you killed him. You killed him. And so now it's not just about the death of Jesus, but it's also about the culpability of the human race. Because in a sense, it's not just those guys 2,000 years ago who killed Jesus. It's you and I who killed him. It's our sin that put him on the cross. And so Peter lays that death of Jesus at the feet of his listeners. He says, the good news about Jesus is that you killed him. That suddenly doesn't sound like such good news anymore. And some would have gone, no, I didn't kill him. That's fake news. <laughs> some of you remember, I've, I've shared this illustration a few times, but you remember Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And some of you remember going and watching that. And, and there's this scene where Jesus is laid down on the cross and he's about to be nailed there. And you've got the, the image of the, the Roman centurion with the hammer and the nail in his hand and Jesus on the cross and the centurion comes over and bends down and places the nail there. And then the, the camera zooms in and then they do a clever thing with the video, with the movie. They stop it there and then they, they edit. And what they edit in is that now Mel Gibson takes the hammer and the nail. And you don't see Mel, you just see his hand. And he nails that nail into the hand of Jesus, into the cross. There's two reasons why he did that. Not just as a funny camera thing, but he did it for us to realize, for, for him to say, I killed Jesus. I, Mel Gibson. That's my hand. And in a sense, that's your hand. It's our sin that nailed him to the cross. 
But it's more than this because Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you and you with the help of wicked men killed him. And then he says, but all of this was by the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. Not just God kind of knew what was going to happen and went, oh, well, that's the way it's going to work out. But by God's set plan and purpose. This was not plan B. This was God's intention from the start that God would kill Jesus. And so back to Mel Gibson. And the second reason that he had his hand in there was to demonstrate that the director of the movie, who is in some sense not really part of the plot, but who is actually... Um, I don't know what, coordinating and making sure that everything happens, that the director of the movie steps in and the director is the one who kills Christ. Not only did you kill Jesus, but God placed him there. God killed his son. And so Peter makes a big deal not only of the death of Christ, but then makes a big deal of the resurrection of Christ. And again, this has been the talk of town in Jerusalem because this was six weeks ago. Six weeks ago, there was the story that Jesus has risen from the dead. A dead man had walked out the tomb. And Peter's saying, this is not fake news, it's true news. We were there. We saw it. We were witnesses to this fact. God, who sent Jesus to the cross, also raised him from the grave. Death could not hold him. Death no longer has a sting. <coughs> Laura, could you give me a little something to drink? A little water, thank you. But the point is that the, the gospel rests on the events of Jesus. They rest on a series of historical, extraordinary events. At the center of the gospel stands a barren cross... And an empty tomb. And without them, there is no gospel. And Peter then goes on to say that Jesus, elevated, sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That he rules and reigns from heaven. And this Jesus, whom you have killed, God has made Lord and Christ. And Jesus is the king that sits on the throne. The anointed one, the expected one, the long expected deliverer. Who rules all things. So just that we know, Putin does not rule the world. Putin is not in charge. Jesus is still on the throne. We have a barren cross. We have an empty grave. And we have an occupied throne. The gospel at its very simplest is an announcement of this good news. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this gospel requires a response, right? So the, the gospel is set in historic events. The gospel is set as a, in, in historical events that happened. But that gospel, that message, that story of Jesus requires a response. The res it requires a response from you and from me. And so the pe people say to Peter... What must we do? What do we do with this? They're cut to the heart, it says. 
And I got to wonder a little bit, what is it that cuts them to the heart? Because often we say that the gospel needs to start with, you're a sinner. And that surely is what would cut people to the heart, right? You're a bad person, you've done terrible things, um, and you're fallen and broken. And when you hear that, you're like, yeah, I need help, I need a savior. But they haven't heard that message. They haven't heard a huge amount of how bad and terrible they are. So what is it that's driven these people to tears? And I think part of it is actually just the simple realization that their, their eyes have been opened by the Spirit, and they finally see the Messiah that they've missed. They see Jesus Christ, who was sent by God, and they've missed him. As, as, as Jews, they, religious Jews certainly, this is the one that they've been waiting for for thousands of years, and he's come and he's gone. The one that they've been waiting for, instead of receiving him, they've rejected him. And I think as Peter tells the crowd of Jesus, the crowd realized that Jesus is their greatest need. Perhaps they felt some culpability in his death, but they, they become aware of themselves and that they cannot save themselves. And the question always comes down to this, right? What do we do with Jesus? What do you and I do with Jesus? What do we do with this good news? Peter's response, obey the law, try harder, be gooder, be better. Now Peter's response to them is, Peter's answer to them is, repent and be baptized. The gospel calls for response. The good news of Jesus forces us to draw conclusions and to make decisions about what we're going to do next. And when the crowd asked Peter what they should do next, his first word to them is repent, turn back, go in a different direction. It's first perhaps the recognition that, that I need a total rethink about who Jesus is. For years, this crowd had heard about Jesus and gone, yeah, you know, teacher, nice guy, whatever. Now, Peter's saying, you need to rethink your opinion of Jesus. We need a rethink of him. It's an acknowledgement that we've been walking away from God and that there's a need to turn and come towards God. There's a recognition that I cannot do this alone, that I am not my own savior, that I'm not good enough, and that ultimately I can't afford to die right here and right now. One of the guys I read this week, one of the commentators says, repentance is a decisive forsaking of sin and self-sufficiency and the embracing of personal faith in and discipleship to Jesus. And I like that, that it's not just forsaking sin, which I think is what kind of the old church way has it, but it's not just a forsaking of sin, but it's a forsaking of self-sufficiency, of the religious, I can do it myself. It is, somebody else said, it's the plank after the shipwreck to recognize that my life is in pieces and it's fallen apart and, and he's my only hope. Clinging on to that, that one little plank. It's more than just feeling and saying sorry. It's looking to, in faith to Jesus and clinging to him. Repentance is the spirit-empowered spirit acknowledgement of sin that results in a change of mind about who and what is Lord in my life, about what is important, about what is good and what is bad, and I wonder how many people around the world, in churches all over the world today, 
have heard the gospel. People here this morning who've heard the gospel. And we know about Jesus and we know about the cross and we know about the resurrection and we've heard about, self, uh, about repentance. And yet, have we ever really changed our minds about anything? And I think some people come to Jesus, come to faith, say a sinner's prayer, and nothing changes at all. All we've done is added Jesus to what we've already got. Repentance requires change in how we think and how we act. And again, sometimes I get this impression within churches that, that like the idea that the gospel is what happens at the very beginning of faith, repentance is the same. You just need to repent once, right at the beginning when you first became a Christian, and since then, you're fine. But I think that repentance, like the gospel is a daily thing, I think repentance is a daily thing. If repentance is changing your mind about who Jesus is, and about changing your mind about who and what is Lord in our life, let's be honest, our mind gets changed all the time. I said, was it last week where, you know, my car needed to be realigned because the wheels are out, because we had potholes through the week. And I think it's a bit like that. We come to church, we need ourselves realigned because you go out this week and you're going to hit the potholes. And you're going to end up changing your mind about how you live and what you say and the way you behave. Because on Monday morning, the taxi cuts you off. And then you get to the office and the boss shouts at you because you're late. And then you spill ink on your favorite tie. And the day is just terrible. And then Tuesday comes and you kick the cat and slam the cupboard. And, I don't know. And we get to a point where we actually we've, we have, without realizing it, changed our minds about Jesus and about the gospel and about, about what we're about and about our mission. We forget, we lose sight of the fact that our mission is to be on mission for Jesus. Instead, we're on mission for ourselves. We lose sense of the community and think we can do it ourselves because we're individuals. And, and it, we, need, we need to repent. It's a daily thing. Repentance is part of the process of realignment. You leave, yeah. Not only are we called to repent, we're also called to believe. To transfer faith to Jesus. To trust our lives to his good grace. And that faith, that belief, is put on display in baptism. And so Peter says, repent and be baptized. Not because baptism is this little you know, religious rite that we do, but that it is an action that demonstrates and displays that we have placed our faith and our trust in Him. And perhaps some of you need to think this morning, do I need to be baptized? The point is that the gospel requires a response. And indifference is a response. It's a choice to continue with life as it is, to do nothing with the good news. But the response, the, the, response, the better response is repentance and faith. And then finally, there is a promise in the gospel too. That there really is good news, and there is a, two promises attached to this good news. Number one, there is forgiveness of sins, Peter says. For those who turn in faith to Jesus, for those who hear this good news about the one who came, and, and turn in repentance, there is forgiveness of sins. In this weary world, we all carry guilt and shame. And many of us carry guilt that we're not even aware of carrying. We, we, we go around with just this deeper sense that things are not really okay. How many of us look back at the things that we've done with some measure of regret? And, and we carry this weight. And sometimes we just 
feel so guilty and we just go, I just can't forgive myself. Again, I've said this before. I was listening to a sermon. Uh, Don Carson had gone to visit someone at a psychiatric hospital in, in Canada, 100, 150 patients in the hospital, and he spoke to the, um, the chief psychiatrist, whatever, and just w- said, what would it take to get these people? I mean, are these people ever going to get back into functional society? It was, it was a place where you go and get locked up. It's the schizophrenics and whatever. And, and he said, what would it take to get any of these people back out in the streets? And the, the doctor said to Don Carson, if I could convince these people that they were forgiven, 70% of them could go back on the streets tomorrow. There is this weight that we carry with us. And the gospel of Jesus offers this. Forgiveness. There's not a need for you to forgive yourself. In fact, you can't forgive yourself. You're not God. You can't self-atone. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You simply can't self-atone. So I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but you're forgiven. Why? Because you've earned it. Because you deserve it. Because your guilt is imaginary and doesn't really exist. Because you've done nothing that you should be ashamed of. No. Because you've been good recently. You've overcome, you know, it's balanced out, the books. No. You are forgiven because of the cross of Jesus. He's borne your guilt. He's taken your shame. You can't forgive yourself. You're not God. And the gospel announces and declares this forgiveness free for all who turn in faith to him. I could pretend to be a priest this morning and issue some forgiveness to you and sign a piece of paper if you like, but that's not going to help. I can do better than that and say, Jesus forgives all who come to him by faith. And the second promise of the gospel is this, is God's indwelling presence. Peter says this promise, this Holy Spirit that you've just seen happening here, this promise is for you. This promise is for you and for your children and for the generations to come. That the Holy Spirit will come and He will be God in you. Not like the Old Testament where He appears every now and then on certain individuals. But no, no, the Spirit has been poured out on all who believe. The Spirit of God now lives in us. And as we said last week, the Spirit, you've seen the, the pictures that are in children's Bibles of the story where the guys are running around and there's this little you know, flame on their heads. No, I don't think that's what it was at all. It says the Spirit came upon them. And I think it's not just a little flame on their head, but I think there's this flame encasing their bodies. They're on fire. Because God dwells in us. We are His temple. The dwelling of God, He fills us in order to send us. The good news that Jesus came, died and rose again, calls us to repent and believe, gives us forgiveness of sins and the Spirit of God. And that is what we hold at the center. That is what makes us look up in worship and awe of God, that He would do this. That's what makes us look down and look around and go, this is why we're in community. This is what drives us out. He came so that we will go. And friends, I must ask this morning, have you embraced this gospel? Have you turned in repentance and faith to Jesus? Have you confessed your need for Him and said, I will follow And Peter says, he says here this morning, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today's a good day 
to call on the name of the Lord. And for those of us who have called on the name of the Lord, who are following him, is your life gospel-centered? Is it the gospel at the center? Is your life a life of repentance and faith? Is your life a humble admission of your daily need for him and a humble acknowledgement of the pursuit of his grace? Is Jesus at the center of it all? Because today is a good day to realign your hearts. Let's pray. Why don't you just take a few moments to reflect this morning? Why don't you take a few moments just to, in a sense, connect with God? I'm going to ask the band to come up again. Lord, this morning you know our hearts. You know the hearts of the men and women here. Lord, we pray for faith, grace, salvation. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would come upon us this morning and fill us. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never quite come to that point of repentance and confession. Lord, may salvation come to this church today. Lord, I pray for, for all of us who say we follow you and yet so often are off track finding ourselves at the center, finding our own dreams and desires at the center, finding ourselves off on our own mission. Lord, realign our hearts once again this morning as we celebrate your good gospel. Amen. Would you stand with us again one more time? Uh, and celebrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus and we'll sing happy day.
some airplane art, but I figured that wasn't important. Yeah. So I am um, going to my grand, so I'm going to escape. Good luck and have fun, sorry. No problem. Uh, I stole mine already. What? 